Have you pressed play? Great. Welcome to episode 2. I am Umberto Di Cinove and this is Get the Bug. A podcast that explores the question What if insects are the next game changers? Hi everyone, and welcome back to Get the Bug. I am a documentary photographer and a filmmaker, and for a while now I've been putting together material about the potential role of insects in the solution of some global issues. So for doing this, I'm traveling around the world, taking photographs and developing a photo book, and talking with experts, entrepreneurs, and people working in the field. The guest for this episode is Marcel Dick. Professor of Entomology and Director of the Laboratory of Entomology at Fackeningen University in the Netherlands. Fackeningen University is one of the best universities worldwide in the field of life sciences. So I was very excited to do this interview and also to take photographs at the lab. Marcel and I talked about biological control, pioneering entomology, insect plant interaction. Colombian former combatants farming insects and much more. Listening back to this conversation and, and looking at the pictures I took, I got that same feeling as when I was there. So that there are people out there taking care of the planet with expertise and a long-term vision. This makes me feel better. I hope you too. And remember, for an introduction to the Get the Bug podcast, don't forget to listen to the Get the Bug special episode. Okay, first thing, if you can briefly introduce me to the activities of the Laboratory of Entomology and let's say the relationship between insects and the Fackeningen University's mission. Uh, the mission of Wageningen University is to um, explore the potential of nature to improve the quality of life. And at the entomology department, we're investigating insects. Uh, and insects are, to many people, uh, a source of nuisance. People think that insects are something that, that bother us. Uh, and I try to convince people that insects are the most valuable organisms we have on this planet. My motto is that without insects, there's no life on Earth. And so we have a lot of ecosystem services that insects provide and that make this planet a habitable planet for human beings. They provide pollination of wild plants, of crops. They can provide ecosystem services in that they suppress potential pests. They um, can be eaten by birds, by mammals and by human beings. But of course, there's also some insects that cause a problem for us. Uh, there's insects that like to feed on our crops. There's insects that like to feed on our clothes or that like to feed on our blood. Well, those are insects that we need to take care of. And the traditional view is you do that with insecticides, but there's much clever, more clever ways of doing that. And so our approaches are to understand how we can mitigate these few problems 
by engaging other insects, for instance, where we uh, are developing biological control options, where in a crop you make sure that the crop is um, an environment where the enemies feel welcome, can do their thing, and can suppress the pest population. We have a long history in that research in this department. We have a long history also in searching for natural ways of combating uh, mosquitoes, for instance, and ticks that uh, transfer diseases to us. And since about 10, 15 years, we're now also doing research on insects as food and feed. Insects by themselves provide some ecosystem services. Biological control is different. I mean, it's already a, a part of the alliance we can establish with insects. So I'm curious about that. Since when biological control has been practiced? Basically from before the year zero. Um, already the ancient Chinese were using systems where in their orchards they were connecting trees with wires so that ants that were in their orchards would be able to travel on a kind of highway from one uh, tree to another without having to go down and through the grass and going up. So they already facilitated it. Research on more human intervention is done since the late 19th century. And, well, here in the Netherlands, we have a very big biological control uh, industry, especially related to glasshouses. But biological control can also be done outdoors. Uh, there's very good uh, projects that have been done con uh, continent-wide in Africa, where pests in cassava were controlled throughout Africa, where a natural enemy of the pest that came from South America, natural enemies were located in South America, transported to, um, to Africa after a lot of investigations to see whether they would be good in managing the pest. They're now managing this pest throughout the whole cassava belt, which spreads from Western Africa all the way to countries like Tanzania uh, in the Southeast. I'm reading a lot about insects in this period. And... Um And I read about this pioneering entomologist, now I don't remember the name, <laughs> who went to Australia to look for uh, the natural predator of a bug that was destroying the Californian cultivations. And that's a story. I mean, it's good for a movie. That was the first real big um, biocontrol uh, system where there was indeed uh, a problem in, in citrus and the insect came from Australia. And so then, and that was in the 1860s, then they went to Australia, they found a nat two natural enemies. One was a ladybug. They transferred them to California, first tried in closed cages and it, it was successful. They then released them and still until today, these natural enemies are still keeping the citrus free of that uh, insect pest. Yeah, it's almost hard to imagine such a long journey in that period and to, to a very different uh, land and looking for an insect. Maybe it's me, it's because of my background, but I repeat, definitely a good movie. When uh, this person found potential natural enemies in Australia... Um, he took them on a boat and had to take care of them on the boat for weeks uh, until he reached California. And so he had to keep them alive. And so this was really much different from sending something through uh, DHL uh, from one side to the other within a day or so. Could be interesting to maybe record an episode just about it, I think. But 
still on biological control. There is another, let's say, angle. So the interaction between plants and insects. And you are the expert. I started this research in the 1980s uh, and I did research uh, for a PhD to investigate how plants defend themselves against um, herbivores. And this was a spider mite, uh, not an insect, but a a, a spider-like organism. Um, And we were sitting around the table and we said, well, if a plant is infested by these spider mites, then when the plant is, the, the spider mite is so destructive that, and it multiplies so rapidly that within a couple of weeks, the plant is completely dead. But the spider mite has a natural enemy, a predatory mite, that when it comes into the population of the spider mites, it feeds on the spider mites and it re- multiplies even faster. And so the spider mite population will be exterminated and the predators are there. And so the, the plant will survive. And we sat around the table and we said, suppose we would be that plant. Then we would love to attract the natural enemy, so these predatory mites, when we are infested by the spider mites. And we said, would it be possible that the plant can do that? And so we started investigating this and we saw that um, predators were attracted to plants that were infested. But we said, well, is this because the spider mites produce something that the predators recognize, or is it the plant that cries for help? And after a long uh, investigation that that took uh, several years, uh, I was capable of uh, showing unambiguously that it's the plant that responds to the spider mites by producing an odor that attracts the predator. And so the plant indeed cries for help once it's attacked. Well, it took me um, several years to convince international colleagues of this. Uh, They uh, thought that I was crazy and uh, plants couldn't do these kind of things. Of course, it would be something of the spider mites that attracted the predators. Once I proved that it was the plant that did it, they said, well, maybe that plant is a very special thing. By now, it's common knowledge that all plants can do this. And so uh, we now know that this is a common strategy of plants. And so plants are not stupid organisms that cannot defend themselves. No, they have options to increase the the presence of the enemies of their own enemies as a friend. What we're doing here at the department in this uh, research is that we're now interested in if plants start to change their characteristics then they are likely not only attract one predator, maybe others, and maybe herbivores are pushed away. And so we're investigating now how a plant in the total set, because a plant has not just one enemy, a plant has a multitude of enemies, and after it uh, conquers one uh, potential enemy, another might come, because in the season one follows the other. And so we're investigating how this sequence works and how plants deal with this complexity and how they still survive and produce seeds or uh, produce biomass. And that's the, the topic of, of our research at the moment. And um, in that, we, we even try to see how we can promote the plant's um, resilience and the plant's growth by making the conditions as good as possible. And one way is to fertilize the plants with uh, rest streams of insect production. And so if we produce insects for food or feed, 
then you produce the insect as a protein source, but you also are left with a leftover, which is the uneaten substrate, feces, and molting skins. Well, what we've shown now is that if you take the molting skins or if you've taken the, the feces or the feces in combination with the uneaten substrate and you put that in the soil, then that promotes the activity of bacteria that colonize the roots of the plants and that help the plants to protect itself and to grow much better. And so what we see is that plants grow much faster uh, and they also produce more seeds or they produce more biomass. And so we try to, to build a complete system in which we are not dependent on artificial fertilizers, not dependent on insecticides, but uh, have a system in which the crops are capable of defending themselves uh, because they're, they're good at that. We only need to promote their uh, capability. Yeah, you just said it took you years to convince your colleagues about the insect-plant interaction. And now insects as food and feed. If I'm not wrong, you like to be this crazy guy that is right in the end. No, yeah, I, 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 like, I like to have something that's controversial as long as I believe in it. And, um, and I believed in, in the plants being an active component. I believed in insects being suitable for food and feed. And why did I believe in that? Because there was good evidence that um, a lot of people in other countries were eating insects already for centuries. And so it was not an invention that we made here. But uh, my colleague Arnold van Huys, who you also met, um, he did this survey in Africa and he found out that this is so common in, uh, in traditional cultures in Africa. Um, we know that it's traditional in Southeast Asia, in uh, Latin America, in Mexico. So we know that there's people that do this. And why do they do this? Because they enjoy it, because it's a good food source and it, it makes them happy. And so that could also be something that could be done in this part of the world. Yeah, that, that's something I've talked about with Professor von Haus, and this how he became aware in the field that some communities and tribes in Africa were, were hiding from, uh, from Western people that they eat insects. And because they know that in, uh, let's say, the Western world, this is considered a primitive. Or, or something that you do just because you are starving. We have colonized their habits. I, I can tell you, I was teaching in China in 2008, and um, I was there for four months, and uh, I also taught about insects as food. And uh, the young Chinese students, so around 20 years old, they had exactly the same response as Dutch students had, like, is this guy crazy? eating insects. And there was one restaurant in that big city where you could eat them. But this was just before the Spring Festival, which is the Chinese New Year. And um, they all traveled to their hometown. And uh, after the Spring Festival, they came back and they told me they came, they came with bags with uh, um, silkworm pupae, different species. And they said, look, we talked about what you taught us uh, to our parents and grandparents. And they said, but we did that all the time. And here, take this to your teacher, because this is what, what we did. And so it was something that was very common. But when the students came to the big city and they had uh, Western life, and so they enjoyed all the kind of fast food chains, they loved the fast food uh, chains, I said, look, 
this is your tradition and this is something that that we are now learning again but I heard also from other people in other Southeast Asian countries that as soon as television comes in the house, as soon as Western life, then it uh, it fades out. And so I sometimes say, well, we as colonizers export the kind of McDonald's food instead of listening to them and saying, well, you're very clever that you're eating insects. We should do that. We should take up your feeding food habits instead of exporting our very bad food habits to other parts of the, of the, of the world. Yeah, I want to add something about this learning again process because we are learning again a lot of things <laughs> like organic food or, uh, or to eat organic food or the value of personal interactions. And some people focus on the negatives. Like, um, yeah, but we just, we have just forgotten some very obvious things or uh, things that our grandfathers, grand grandparents knew. And this is like diminish the process and the progress. I think we need to focus on the positive side. That for me is this learning again process is already a mass process. Now, if you think about the, the they say hippies were, were right about everything about politics, about the environment, about music. And maybe it's provocative, but maybe it's not so far <laughs> from reality. I always keep the part about Nixon and, and the Nobel Prize, Bob Dylan, but let's stay on organic foods, farm to table, renewable energies. They were right, but they were just few people. Now, for example, in Europe, you can find organic food almost everywhere. And for example, uh, energy efficiency is common sense. So I think we can be positive. Well, if you're pessimistic, you're fed by so many developments. And there's a lot of optimism uh, that, that can be uh, feeding the young generation, the older generations. Uh, there's opportunities that, that we should, but we need to change our mind. And so when do we change our mind? That's only when crises uh, appear. Um, when um, in uh, agriculture, when people use insecticides and they, um, they control the pest initially, but after a while you see that it doesn't work as well anymore. And some of these insecticides we even know can promote the, uh, the, the growth of a population of insects. Uh, if you see that it doesn't work as well, then usually then, well, we'll increase the dose. Uh, we'll use another insecticide in addition, et cetera, et cetera. And so you are in what, what is being called a treadmill of insecticide use until the, the level where it's impossible to, to do anymore. And then you are at a crisis. I usually tell this story to my students about uh, Spain in, in Almeria, uh, the biggest horticulture center of Europe. There... They were using, they were growing the same kind of vegetables that we are growing in uh, glass houses in the Netherlands. They have the plastic houses there. Um, and they have had the same pests and they were using insecticides and they were spraying more and more every year. We had companies in Belgium and the Netherlands who had set up a whole system of biological control in Dutch glass houses. And so they had a number of natural enemies that could together do the job and keep the, the vegetables insecticide free. And they told to the glass to the, the growers in Spain, well, 
why do you still use chemical insecticides? We have this alternative solution. The farmer said, well, come on, we have such a big trouble in suppressing these pests in, uh, in our uh, crops. Do you think that something alternative as biological control can do that? No, that can't be possible. So the, the companies said, well, okay, just remember that we have this. Then the farmers continued until the level where they even uh, used um, insecticides that were illegal. And um, there was a report by Greenpeace in Germany that did an analysis and it showed that um, the levels of insecticides on the tomatoes, on the sweet peppers, uh, were above all the levels agreed upon. And also there were illegal insecticides. And so then the German supermarkets went to Spain and they said, well, we've seen this report we don't want to sell this anymore. You have two options. You continue what you're doing, and then we're not buying from you anymore, or you change to a non-insecticide system. Well, that was a crisis for these uh, growers. And so then they said, well, there were these crazy Dutch and Belgian companies that thought that it could be done in a different way. If it doesn't work, then at least we tried. So they went back to them and they said, well, can you help us? And they said, yeah, of course, we have the whole system in place, so we'll, uh, we'll help you. And they started changing the complete system. And then a couple of years later, there was an inventory made among the farmers. And then the inventory was, are you equally happy with biological control, less happy or more happy? And 97% of the growers said, we're more happy now because the products are even of better quality than they were before. But so these kind of things, well, keep me going. Uh, and sometimes, well, a crisis is never good, but we need to, to look at it. And in a crisis, we also need to look at things from multiple perspectives. And usually we're not able to do that. Um, in the Netherlands, at this moment, we have a crisis in agriculture, especially with um, meat production, because, well, we have a large number of cows per square kilometer in the Netherlands. And, um, well, we have a manure problem. And that manure problem is already for 40 years here. And governments have always pushed it ahead. And they said, well, we'll find the technology to deal with that. And But if we increase uh, farms and if we have more efficiency, then in the future we'll be able to deal with this nitrogen emission, uh, ammonia, etc. Um, now the European Union said, well, you were pushing this further and further, but time's up now. You need to take measures. And so now the government is trying to change this, but they didn't do it in a very clever way. They simply said, well, you need to change and we need to reduce by um, 40 to 50% uh, all uh, livestock. And then farmers said, we're not capable of doing that. Well, I understand that, that the farmers say that, but everyone knows that this was coming. And now you see also the alternatives, but, and people now focus just on nitrogen. But we need to look at, so what does ammonia, what do all the other things? We have a landscape in which we have grass, in which there's a monoculture of grass. There's no more herbs, and it's, uh, it's from road until ditch. It's all uh, grass. Uh, it's, it's, there's no diversity. And so we see the diversity in insects in birds etc goes down as well well then if some conclusions come like we should do this or that then people focus only on the ammonia on ammonia but you should also look at well what's good for biodiversity what's good for co2 emission what's good for life 
on the country, in the countryside, what's good for the farmers and how are they supported by the consumers. Uh, the consumers should also change because they should, well, say, well, if we want to do that and they want to do to, to farmers to change, then we're going to buy their products. And so it's a complicated issue that has also complicated or, or a diversity of, of aspects around it. And so that's something that, well, that we need to, to deal with uh, much more in, in making any kind of transition. And that's a transition of going from, and so um, producing insects instead of livestock can, can help partly that. But it doesn't mean that all our livestock can still be here. We should make livestock production more sustainable. At the same time, we should also reduce livestock because we can't do it the way we, we always did. And um, then the discussion comes on, well, but then, and so the farmers here say, well, if we need to reduce, then the world will face hunger. Well, I don't think that's, that's correct. We cannot feed the world continuously with this high level of, uh, of meat production. And the worst in, case, uh, in, in terms of agricultural land in feed intake, etc., is beef. So if we have such a high density of cows per square kilometer in the Netherlands, that's to start with. It's, it's the most unsustainable meat production. There we need to do something. And that starts with eating less meat, and we're producing a lot internationally, so we export a lot, but our system also needs to change. And and that's, come, well, there we come also to insects for food and feed. That can be a part of a solution. It's not the solution, but it's part of the solution. Yeah, this, this brings out a couple of things. As you said, crisis push change, but what kind of change? I mean, some people uh, go in the direction of more more technology, more money. So they often keep the same consumerist-oriented approach. On the other side, there is the less approach that, of course, is healthier and probably also more ethical. But on a worldwide scale, it simply can't work. I mean, of course, we, let's say, we Europeans uh, can reduce our meat consumption, for example. And, and this is the other topic I want to, to discuss with you. But the increasing world population needs protein. I consider bioconversion with insects like a third way. But even if I want to be positive, I think that if insects were some local or limited resource, it's easy to predict how we would behave. But this is not the case. And it's not just that insects are almost everywhere. It's also easier to rear insects in some developing countries because of the climate and the environment, than in other places. So you were in Colombia, supporting Insects for Peace, and also in Kenya. Insects for Peace and, and the Kenya project have several things in common. Those smallholder farmers, black soldier fly larvae, the goal of reducing the need to buy expensive food from abroad, and your involvement. When thinking about Insects for Peace, that... Um, that is a project that was developed by uh, Carol Barragan Fonseca. And, well, she came to the Netherlands to do a PhD on insects as feed. And uh, after that, she went back to Colombia and she had this vision of, well, I want to solve several issues. We, I, I know that insects can be a good food, a feed source. 
Um, we have in Colombia a country that that has had this this uh, war for uh, civil war for such a long time, and the ex-combatants are now settling. They need a new kind of life, and uh, they they need to be integrated in society. Carol developed this project, and she asked me to come over to to Colombia and to visit uh, Econonzo, where uh, Ricardo Arcinigas is uh, is running this uh, this plant and then started this. And I really enjoyed uh, that whole initiative because I could see a lot of things coming into place, um, changing uh, the dependency of external uh, feed inputs, promoting society uptake of people that need a new place, um, and making life sustainable, and working with individual smallholder farmers like Ricardo. Um, I was at the end of a project that I ran in uh, Kenya, uh, together with the International Center for Insects, Physiology and Ecology, ICPE. Um I was the coordinator of the project, and we had five, four years of uh, project where our goal was to see whether we could um, implement insects as feed for smallholder farmers in Kenya. What we did in that project was... We did research on the research station in Nairobi to see how you could rear insects and how you could train farmers in doing that. So uh, that was one thing. We investigated with farmers whether they were interested in changing this. And I still very well remember that even before we started the project, we had a meeting with farmers to see what their interest was. And one farmer said, well, you're rather late because I already started doing this and I'm very happy. I thought, well, very good. That's a good start of the project. So we um, taught individual farmers or trainers of farmers on how to do this. They went to their communities and they started doing this and they also explained it to others. I've, I've met several farmers at all kinds of meetings there. They were really enthusiastic. And why were they so enthusiastic? For several reasons. One, it was very good uh, insects, the, the black soldier fly, was a very good feed component. They saw that their livestock was really happy. And one farmer told me, um, I have this, this black soldier fly production and once or twice a week I'll collect the, the larvae, I'll go to my chicken and I'll feed them. She says, when I come with the bucket, they see the bucket and they know what's coming and they all come to me because they want to have the, the larvae. And she said also, um, it's not only that I have a good source here, but I was always seen in the village as something poor who was raising some chicken and, uh, well, was dependent. And she says, now they could see that I did very good things with that and that I, I could earn more money and my social status improved. And then she said, I did something else. And that was... Um, the, the residual stream, so the, the the waste stream from the insect production, I heard that you can use it to feed your crops and to fertilize your crops. And she said, I rented a piece of land and everyone in the community told me, are you crazy? That land, the previous person renting that land didn't get any uh, produce off that. She said, well, let's see. And she used the, the manure of the insects and everyone was astonished by the the crop quality on, on her plot. And then they said, how did you do that? Well, with the re re remaining stream of, of my insect production, and she got a good production there. And so 
it's really changed her position in the village. Now everyone says, what, what a good idea you had. And so in this way, it also spread. And that's what I really liked. And so when I was in uh, Colombia and Carol uh, showed me around uh, with, with Ricardo, then and I was really impressed by what Ricardo, with the help of the students from, from Bogota, was, was accomplishing there. And so I said, well, it would be really nice if you could have also a connection to the people in Kenya and so see how they're doing there, farmers, but also insect farmers and the research institute. So then Carl and Ricardo went to, to Kenya and uh, they, they visited uh, the institute and uh, the farm uh, or the insect farm. And uh, it was a kind of inspiration for them also to see how others were doing it to compare how, how they were developing new things in Colombia. So you're listening to Marcel Dick, director of the Laboratory of Entomology at the Hageningen University. Our entire conversation ended up to be too long for just one episode, so another episode will follow. It will be focused on insects as food, vegetarianism, and spaghetti bolognese, so don't miss it. In the meantime, some references. You can find the Insect Cookbook, Food for a Sustainable Planet, by Marcel Dick, Enk von Kurp, and Arnold von Haus, in major online bookstores. But if you can, walk to an independent bookshop, you go there, you talk with some human beings, maybe about Get the Bug, about Insects for Peace or Insectos por la Paz. Check out the, the video on YouTube, Insects for Peace Short Doc 2022. And Carol Baragan will be on this podcast soon. Don't forget also the Marcel Dick TED Talk on YouTube. That's all for this episode. Please subscribe to Get the Bug and share it with everyone you know, takes care of the environment is curious about life science, was an hippie, and or thinks outside the box. I do believe insects could be the next game changer. And that's why I'm working on my photo book and doing this podcast. Thanks for listening. This was Get the Bug. <laughs> <laughs>